So today we're very lucky to start with the thinking about how do we improve management of myrtle rust, the past and the future. And I'd like to invite Jeff Pegg from the Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and Bob Makinson, the chair of the Myrtle, National Myrtle Rust Working Group, to talk to us about what's been happening in that space and what was planned for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth. Um, I'm going to give, I guess, an overview of, of I guess, the past um, and what we've done research-wise, and then hand over to Bob, um, who'll give an idea from a, a conservation perspective where we're heading with myrtle rust, and then the, hopefully the future um, engaging with the uh, the um, um, environmental departments. So just a very, very quick overview, uh, just to update on, on the spread of the disease. Um, I'll just get the pointer. So the most recent detections um, are up in, in Melville Island, Darwin. So it's slowly spreading west. In terms of the east coast, we're just looking at basically, it's well established in, in multiple different uh, ecosystems. Still east of the, the Great Dividing Range, we're not really getting any emergence of disease west of that Great Dividing Range. In both Victoria and Tasmania, it still seems to be restricted to backyards, nurseries, and it hasn't expanded into, um, into any of the, the native ecosystems. Whether these, this recent weather system will drive it into that, yet to be seen. Uh, the very most recent detection, um, only two weeks ago, was at Lord Howe Island um, on Cisium Jamboss. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of impacts it'll have on that island. So just going on to the, the project itself, um, looking at our, our outputs for the, for the project, um, initially looking at screening methodologies, uh, selecting resistance to Puxinia sidiae, so looking at both within genera and within species, more from a commercial perspective, but also looking from that environmental perspective within breeding populations, so implementing into to structured uh, industries already, and looking at resistance patterns, heritability, um, uh, and resistance mechanisms as well. Then we were looking at field methodologies. Uh, initially, we were just rating susceptibility, to try and get an idea of what the host range was and what their relative susceptibilities were as a guideline for, for looking at, at strategies for environmental protection. Uh, then we've merged more into looking at the impact um, and how to assess impact in these on different species and within in different plant communities. <laughs> so just looking initially at plant industries and the impact to date, um, obviously there, there was a loss of species. Uh, there's a big restriction on, on trade interstate. Um, there was an increase in need for, for fungicide treatments um, and obviously shutting off of, of any trade with Western Australia, Tasmania prior to that, them getting the disease. So there was massive impacts, and I think in the first year, um, John McDonald quoted in Queensland alone, there was a $9 million loss uh, within the first 12 months for us to roll in there. Um, from a forestry perspective, to date, it's been a fairly minimal impact. Um, this is maybe um, in those areas where rust is, is most dominant. We don't have a lot of, of new plantation developments. So we don't see a lot of young eucalypt plantations being put out into the ground. So whether that'll be time, who knows? Uh, Emily's already covered off on, on the native food side of things, but obviously there's been significant impact, impacts on this developing industry area. <coughs> so again, looking at, at some of our research outcomes, uh, we've identified now a significant host list. Um, uh, we're looking at, at resistant and tolerant more for the industry side of things and trying to identify that. But on the other side, we're looking at, at, at the highly, um, highly and extremely susceptible species so we can start planning from an environmental perspective. So at this state, stage, we've got more, more than 350 species from 57 genera. Now that includes both field identified and just glasshouse screened host material. Um, some of this is, is now published um, and the, the host list is actually established and, and is, we're aiming to try and keep it up to date. Um, 
on websites, and Bob might talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then we put out an original publication um, early on in 2014. Uh, we're looking now at, a, at um, in discussions with John McDonald from the nursery industry, to put out um, a summary of, of this whole project in a publication, a horticultural journal, which will update all these host species, as well as all their relative susceptibilities. One of the, the, the early susceptibility ratings we used, and this is really just to get as much information as we could really rapidly, was use, just using a four, uh, four rating system, tolerant through to, to extremely susceptible. And using that system, and we predominantly use this in Queensland, um, we've identified or assessed 180 different species. And within those, 50 have been identified as, as highly or extremely susceptible to the disease. But there is, within some of those, some variability uh, in susceptibility, so op opportunities to actually identify resistance moving forward. Um, fortunately, the, the system has actually been ideal in, in being able to predict impact uh, with all those trees that we actually identified as being either highly susceptible or ex extremely susceptible uh, are showing severe uh, levels of decline. Um, some of those species have been killed out of, uh, out of botanic gardens and other ex situ plantings. Um, we're hoping that this assessment system will now be adopted as, as we wind down our work and more hosts are identified that we can actually implement this as a standardised way of, of assessing and recording information as we identify new hosts and as it moves into new areas as well. So the other outcomes from the plant industry side of things, um, we're looking at obviously implementing resistance within in current breeding programs that are established. Obviously the eucalypt uh, programs are quite well established in terms of their breeding structures. Uh, so we've, we've looked at a range of, of subtropical species that are, that are relevant to us, including the Carimbia and the spotted gum, and they are actually quite susceptible, so it's quite surprising that we're not seeing any impact on this species in the field. Uh, the other ones we're looking at are Eucalyptus Clesiana and Argafloia, and Argafloia being a rare and endangered species. But at the same time, we're also looking at Eucalyptus globulus, which is an important species from, from the southern areas, um, and we've been working with the University of Tasmania and, and looking at actually uh, the genes controlling resistance, because there are two different types of resistance within the, um, when you're doing the rust screening. So, um, We also have, have collaborated with a Rurdic project and, and it sort of led to, to Emily's work with the, the lemon myrtle. Um, DAF fortunately collected uh, many years before rust arrived, a big collection of, of lemon myrtle across its provenance range. And we've now sc uh, screened 392 clones of those which Emily's now working with. Um, so that's obviously the outcome in terms of, of Emily's project. Um, we've more recently started looking at the broadleaf Melaleuca species. Obviously Melaleuca are important from an um, ecological perspective, but also they're, they're a common species used in the nursery industry. So we wanted to oppor identify opportunities um, from a, both a, a commercial perspective, but also identify and see what sort of populations might be at risk of impact over time. So just very quickly going over this, we, this is seed that was collected pre-rust um, from the Australian Tree Seed Centre. So we wanted to have a look at the resistance levels within them and how variable it might be across the different provenances. And as, you, as you can see here, this is looking at the, the, the percentage of resistant seedlings within the, the provenances we've tested, and there's quite a degree of difference within these populations. Um, the positive news is that there is generally some resistance, so we can actually move forward in terms of, of strategies for, for both nursery and for restoration um, of degraded uh, we've also, uh, just very quickly, this is just looking at, at I guess, the, the impact and the visual impact we're seeing on, on Melaleucas. Uh, you can see the, the more resistant trees and individuals, so there's about 40% in this population, and you're starting to see a, a decline with the repeated infection, you're losing um, leaf sizes declining, you're losing density in the, the tree as well. So 
Um, this was starting to look also at the other broadleaf, so Meluca leucodendra, and now it's jumped into, now that rust has jumped into the Northern Territory, obviously Kakadu wetlands is a, an important area to, to look at from a conservation perspective. And so you can see with this species, which is common in that area, the Western Australia and Northern Territory, there's very, very low levels of resistance within the populations we've tested today. And we're finding similar sort of levels, low levels in the Western Australian populations. Not too bad in the Northern Territory, but there is a fair degree of susceptibility in that area. So, so there is issues uh, potentially moving forward if rust does establish in areas like the Kakadu. So I guess the environment starts to become obviously a, an area of greater concern for us. Um, uh, because it is much more difficult, obviously, to, to manage than, than dealing with the commercial side of things. Um, as I said, we've looked at the susceptibility of 180 uh, species, but we've now actually got detailed impact assessment on 21 species. Uh, we're looking at that across, the impact across the, the natural distribution, impact on regeneration following disturbance, and now impact on plant communities, so not just at a species level. Uh, this is, a lot of you would have probably seen this in, in previous work, and this is now published um, in 2015, Car uh, Carnegie et al. Uh, so this is looking at a widespread species and the impact it's had. It's one of the more susceptible species we identified early on, uh, Rhodomotus cityoides. Um, when we did the assessment, the decline was, was already well advanced. Uh, so even the short period of time that Rust had been here, it managed to kill off a lot of these, uh, these areas that we'd assessed. So it's just looking at the devastation, so you're looking at different Systems here, this is a, a, a much taller forest stand of Rhodomotus cityoides, totally killed off west of Coffs Harbour. This is in the Talabudra Valley um, in the Gold Coast hinterland, and this is at Byron Bay. So different eco ecosystems, but still having the same degree of, of impact. So we've gone actually back to these, these systems. This is looking at this site in Talabudra in 2014. Um, and if we look now in 2016, we're actually not seeing any regeneration of this species at all. Uh, and Laura uh, Fernandez is actually, with her PhD, is actually starting to look at uh, what are the, the other plant species replacing this, so what's the change in plant community, communities as we go forward. The other species was Rhodamnia rubescent. Um, its decline rate was a lot slower uh, than what we saw with, with Rhodomotus cityoides, but it was declining. Um, and from what we've seen now, it seems to have almost reached that tipping point where we're starting to see this really rapid decline uh, it's, it's, it's defoliation from the base up, um, and a lot of the populations we've revisited are showing severe decline. Uh, this is very, very recent work. Uh, this is looking at, at plant communities. Um, this is an area in Talabudra Valley, west of, of uh, the Gold Coast there. Um, it's a wet sclerophyll ecosystem uh, with a rainforest understory. Um, in those sort of situations, if there's no further disturbance, it would normally transition from the wet sclerophyll into rainforest ecosystem. It's a, it's a highly rich, uh, mutatious environment. Um, there's very few other species in the understory, and overstory is dominated by Eucalyptus grandis and uh, Lophosum and Confertus. So just looking in here at the, at the, the pie graph, we can see that the Archirhodomotus, Becquerae, Gossia, Hillii, and Decasperm cumuli are the most dominant species, with Acmena smithii, um, Fairly low percentage, but still present within the environment. If we look at the impacts, and this is just, just basically extracting some, some data and looking at, at tree canopy health, so looking at how many branches uh, are basically remain healthy on the tree. The only one that's showing any, any indication of being relatively resistant to the disease is Acmena smithii. So we're starting to actually lose these, all these species which are dominant in the site. 
And then when we look at the, the seedlings that are actually regenerating in the site, it's now dominated by Aplanus smithii. So there's a change in that species composition already being recognised. Considering it was only in, in 2011 that we recognised it in this site, I mean, that's very, very rapid for, the, for that sort of change. Is the disturbance enough to, to prevent it going to, to rainforest? We're not quite sure. Um, only time will tell. So this just, I guess, visually, and there was, there was a paper put out, um, I think 2012, 13 maybe, um, indicating that, you know, well, it was, it was titled What Happened to Myrtle Rust? And it was indicating that we haven't seen what um, the experts tipped in terms of an ecological firestorm. But maybe we're getting to the stage where, where we're starting to see the real effects of the disease. This is back in 2014. You can see three different species there. Uh, the tree in the background is probably a 20, 25 metre tree. And if you look forward now to 2016, that's the level of defoliation. And that's pretty common across the site with all these species. This is just looking down a, a watercourse uh, where there has been revegetation, so it's going through that transition. Um, it's, a, it's an ex-grazing property. So you can see the severe decline in a range of different species, Rhodamnia rubescens, Decasimbermin humuli, Acmena smithii, and you can actually see a resistant Acmena smithii coming uh, through here. And this is the understory decline that we're seeing. We're seeing that, that Eucalyptus grandis overstory, and you're seeing a complete devastation of the understory. So the outcomes in terms of the, the environment, uh, as I said, the first publication we've, we've already done, uh, the proposed publication, we're hoping to put out uh, three in the, the near future. So looking at the regeneration of Meluca quinquinervia, uh, the interaction with uh, some of the native insect pests, and then the history of, I guess, Meluca to weed species in Florida, and they've, they've actually introduced a lot of our insect pests into Florida to help to, to control it in addition with the rust. And we're seeing some really significant and interesting interactions in that area. Um, as we mentioned, the wet sclerophyll areas, uh, we'll be doing some more assessments to see how broad uh, the, the impact is across the different areas. And then we're looking at regeneration following wildfire. Obviously wildfire is common within the coastal heath environment, so what's the role does uh, rust play in terms of species uh, degradation? Uh, we held a workshop in, in uh, Brisbane in April and it was really designed to, to just create awareness um, within the, the various environment departments because they really weren't paying attention to what was going on. And we wanted to make sure the information was, was uh, you know, really put out there and put in their faces. Um, so we had various representatives from the, the, the federal and state um, departments, uh, PHA and the CRC, as well as representatives from New Zealand and, and the US. Um, it was part funded by the uh, National Environment Science Program, so we started to engage with those groups as well. So just looking at some of those impacts, I guess, from that side of things, uh, we've now got legislative um, outcomes, so metal rust has been declared in New South Wales as a threatening process and has been listed uh, by Bob uh, to, to make sure it comes on as a, as a national threatened process. Um, for Rhodomertison City uh, and, and Rhodamnia, um, an application has been submitted to declare them as critically endangered. Um, we now have a metal rust um, environment impacts working group, which uh, Bob will talk a little bit about as well. And there's also been a briefing of, of all the Federal Department of Environment Division heads and head of the Australian Government um, based on the information we've, we've provided from this project. Um, and the recommendation is that that information now be taken further to, the, to a future COAG meeting. There's some more projects coming online. As I said, um, NESP is, is supporting a PhD student. Um, and there's also another project in New South Wales trying to prioritise species based on the information we have as well as previous information in terms of their, their already susceptibility, uh, the, their um, status in terms of conservation. 
So just very quick thank you uh, to Angus and, and Susie, uh, Fiona and David Lee, who's helped us out in terms of, of getting all these populations for the breeding strategies. Peter Entwistle and John Huth for, for all the field work and, and Kylie, who was on the, the previous project. Um, Gordon and, and Bob, from a taxonomic perspective, I mean, when rust arrived, I probably only knew it was a Myrtaceae that actually had rust on it, but I've, I've learnt a lot since. So. Um, but I really want to thank the, the CRC, because without the CRC, um, both this current CRC and the previous ones, we would not have had the opportunity to, to capture this data. So I really appreciate the, the support from, from the CRC and all the, the staff there as well who, who supported what we've done. Uh, so thank you very much, and I'll hand over to, to Bob. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks very much from my point of view to the CRC for giving me the opportunity to be here this week. It's been a terrific event and it's uh, been already very useful uh, from a Myrtle Rust uh, environmental point of view. I'm here wearing two hats. Uh, one is for this um, Myrtle Rust Environmental Impacts Working Group, which was formed out of a workshop convened by Jeff on uh, Commonwealth Threatened Species Money uh, back in April in Brisbane. Um, and we formed this working group because we uh, basically wanted to uh, try and pick up the ball that was dribbling out towards the touchline, uh, not having been picked up by the environmental agencies uh, effectively over the last six years. Now, there's obviously limits on the degree to which a pop-up working group of this sort with no resources and uh, no particular aegis uh, can do that, but to the extent that we can uh, work to create better political and bureaucratic awareness uh, of the issue, that's what we're doing. The other hat I'm wearing is for the Australian Network for Plant Conservation, which is a bit of an under-the-radar NGO which has been closely concerned with myrtle rust awareness, education uh, and the environmental impacts uh, for the last six years. Uh, and there's a bit of bump on the table outside about us, um, uh, if you're interested. By and large, the environmental agencies in Australia and conservation sector have had to deal with only a relatively few broad spectrum pathogens in the past. We're used to dealing with uh, weeds and ferals, but broad spectrum and high impact uh, pathogens uh, have been limited pretty much to Phytophthora uh, for plants uh, and to uh, a couple of uh, animal related diseases, chytrid for frogs being uh, a case in point. And there's been some effective but reactive uh, measures taken in relation to some species for some of those processes. Myrtle rust is a bit of a newie and the lessons of it haven't sunk in yet on the environmental, uh, environmental side of things. And we know of course this room needs no telling that there's a horrible queue of big hairy monsters uh, waiting to come into the country, uh, several of which have the capacity to attack a very wide range of Australian native biota. Now, Australia has about uh, 2,200 species in the family Myrtaceae. Um, depending on whose bioclimatic predictions uh, you run with, um, and they're all pretty tentative, um, up to about 1,100 of those could be in the zones likely to be suitable for full establishment of myrtle rust, so it's quite a big proportion of the total family. The uh, models that we have uh, up to date have been largely based on overseas data, both as regards climatic occurrence for myrtle rust and um, uh, it, it, the kind of tolerances we can expect here. Uh, and as you can see, while the east coast, these three maps across the top, the east coast is a common feature of all of them, there's wide differences between the predictive models uh, as regards the 
uh, monsoon tropics and uh, the southwest of WA. In terms of number of species likely to be impacted by myrtle rust, uh, much will depend on WA. Uh, in the southwest corner, in just five IBRA bioregions, there are over a thousand uh, myrtaceae species. And um, you can see from the very bottom map on the right-hand side there that uh, that's the zone of, uh, if it does establish in WA, that's, that's the zone where it's going to uh, all come down. But moving from the, the speculative issue of what might happen in WA to what's actually happening on the east coast, this is Jeff's map again, uh, I've done a very preliminary uh, rough and ready sort of analysis of the degree of overlap between the myrtle rust naturalisation zone as it currently is and the distribution of the known host species along the east coast. And the short version is that there's 165 known host species which have their distributions totally or very nearly totally, like 95% plus, uh, within the myrtle rust naturalisation envelope. Now, there's certain assumptions behind that. I've assumed a continuity of myrtle rust uh, incidents from about Naruma uh, in New South Wales uh, north to Cape York. Um, obviously, some areas have a, a lesser spore load than others, uh, but by and large, that's the picture, 165 totally within the envelope. Of those, 32 are currently rated as uh, partly or wholly within the highly susceptible to extremely susceptible categories uh, developed by Jeff and others. And that number can be expected to rise as we get better information. A further 15 species are predominantly within that envelope. Now, a more refined analysis of this overlap, uh, but with rather different assumptions, is underway by Catherine Berthon at Macquarie University. Um, and she's having to submit her paper by the end of the year, so we'll have another uh, published estimate uh, fairly soon. Uh, just to, I won't restate this in any detail, but the Rhodomyrtus pisidioides um, uh, situation, um, the collection of data for the paper that uh, uh, Jeff talked about ceased at about this time of year in 2014. So there's been a further two years of erosion since then uh, of these two species. Uh, the 57% adult mortality in Rhodomyrtus pisidioides is uh, a catastrophic level of crash from an extinction risk point of view. Uh, and of course there's been no, um, uh, no recruitment um, of any uh, significance during that period. And the crown transparency rates for both those species are phenomenally high, uh, running double or treble uh, the estimated normal. So these are two species which are going to be extinct in the wild in the very near future, the way things are going. And there could be up to 20 or 30 others, but we don't know because there are no systematic monitoring programs in place other than those being uh, run by Jeff uh, and some of his colleagues uh, who are on the primary industry side of things. The environment agencies simply have not stepped up with a, a comprehensive monitoring and impact assessment program as yet. And that's part of our problem. There are many unknowns. I won't dwell on this slide for uh, time reasons, but the photo at the top there is the scariest picture I've seen in the last six years. That's a cotyledonary seedling of Eucalyptus planchoniana, the adults of which are known hosts, but not particularly badly affected. But this uh, seedling was one of a, a nursery batch which died in toto. And of course, if uh, things are getting hit at that critical life stage, um, uh, but not so badly affected at adult stage, the, the first signal we're going to get about the impacts in the wild will be a sudden absence of saplings about 10 or 20 years from now. Somebody will finally notice that uh, there are no uh, juveniles coming through. 
So critical life stage information is hard to come by at the moment uh, and that reflects the lack of uh, monitoring as well. Moving from species level to generic level, the host, um, known host levels are alarmingly high in certain genera in the Myrtaceae. Uh, this table shows the number of known hosts to the total number of Australian species uh, in certain genera that are affected. Uh, and uh, while the susceptibility and incidence ratings at species level do vary, um, there's, it's, it's getting to pretty high levels, particularly for Rhodamnia and Rhodomyrtus. Uh, while the loss of a single species is an, an irreplaceable loss of genetic resource, the potential loss over the longer term of whole genera uh, is uh, a loss not to be contemplated, well, except we have to contemplate it, uh, and uh, it's a failure of custodianship uh, if we don't uh, make a very active response to that. Now, this room will need no telling that the environment agencies, uh, by and large, are not fully alert to biosecurity problems in general, but myrtle rust in particular, uh, or adequately equipped uh, to deal with them, uh, at least for pathogens. Um, the historical reasons for this are, um, we, we could probably bore each other silly with, with sort of stories about why this situation has arisen, uh, but the, for the moment I just want to say it's a historical fact that uh, there's been a kind of ratchet effect where the main centre of gravity on biosecurity and particularly on pathogens has been with the primary industry sector and its agencies and the environment sector by and large has acquiesced in the situation where uh, we've, we've not got the expertise, we've not got the response models um, and um, that's a real problem. So this might be a rose-coloured spectacles view of uh, your situation but that's how it looks from uh, where I stand. So we've got to address that. Now, directions for a myrtle rust response are going to really condition um, how prepared the environmental sector is for other future pathogens. The key, uh, th there's a string of things under these headings and others that uh, can be done for myrtle rust, even though there's no magic bullets. Um, but uh, getting it onto the environmental agenda uh, is the, um, the prerequisite, if you like, getting the attention of the agencies, uh, the politicians, where we can do that without a risk of them uh, sort of um, running right or running rogue with, uh, with the issue. Um, and I think there's two critical elements for getting it onto the environmental uh, agenda. One of those is a strong statement of the urgency uh, of the situation and an overview of the needs for a non-magic bullet response. And that would, uh, after a lot of discussion that seems to be taking the, the, the form of a national review and a draft national action plan. Now the CRC has been pursuing uh, the Commonwealth Department of Environment for co-funding uh, to develop uh, something of that sort and while it's not quite nailed down yet my understanding is that it's looking promising. The second element is much more active representation of the issue of the environmental impacts um, and that's uh, something that, uh, to the extent that uh, an unresourced uh, working group can do, the Myrtle Rust Environmental Impacts Working Group is taking on, uh, and we've contributed to briefings at higher levels in the Commonwealth Environmental Bureaucracy. Uh, we're pursuing listings of species uh, and key threatening processes and things of that sort. I won't dwell further. There's, there's, I could talk about each of the, uh, the headings there as to things we need to do. I will mention there's been no uh, uh, appraisal of the potential cultural impacts uh, of uh, myrtle rust uh, so far in Australia. New Zealand is well ahead of us on this. Uh, they're already thinking about that aspect. 
and uh, in addition to the environmental impacts, the cultural impact stuff is something that needs to be uh, addressed quite urgently. So our response, whatever it is, to myrtle rust will shape the capability of the environmental sector for future pathogens, uh, but it will push us uh, into um, grappling with difficult interventionist strategies that are a bit foreign to our, uh, our ethos, if you like, uh, up till now. There's plenty of potential for resistance breeding, uh, potentially both cis and transgenic, uh, but um, the problem then is you don't want to narrow, from a conservation point of view, uh, how do you avoid narrowing the overall uh, genetic base of the organisms that you're dealing with? How do you rewild resistance traits uh, without that kind of genetic bottlenecking uh, back into the wild. It's a problem with few uh, precedents uh, worldwide uh, and few models to follow. Um, Australia's got the potential to be a bit of a world leader on, on doing that, but it's a long road and it will require significant investment. Secondly, and partly to enable that kind of species recovery response, uh, we're going to need germplasm collection and research on a fairly unprecedented scale. So there's a bunch of technical, social, ethical uh, and other um, issues around all of those. The conservation sector will need to draw heavily on the expertise of uh, you and your organisations in doing this because of that imbalance in expertise and experience that I noted earlier. Now from the uh, conservation um, side of the fence, as it were, uh, Australia's um, environmental biosecurity infrastructure um, has uh, sometimes seemed like this. Um, it's had a long and honourable and functional history, uh, but there's, um, and there's elements of the structure which, which have served well and continue to do so. And we've had a fair bit of experience in looking after the stuff that's stowed in our part of the shed, uh, albeit on a reactive basis, but we haven't had a lot of experience with overall shed repair, let alone the building of new sheds, uh, whereas you have. Um, and the, uh, the advent of the Biosecurity Act uh, in 2015 uh, promises a new shed, but the fact of the matter is that the biodiversity conservation sector is going to have to lift its game a very great deal if it's to participate fully in the uh, design and execution of the uh, said shed. And we're going to be depending on a lot of crossover with you and to the extent that uh, we can um, ask you to assist with that crossover, to take the opportunity to talk to your environmental colleagues, uh, to take up uh, some of the challenges even more than you have, uh, that would be a good thing. So thank you very much.